Though the global pandemic may be slowing things down, Spring Branch is taking tangible steps forward to keep our economy strong, like supporting our local businesses, linking them to free online business courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmd.org. Hi, and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicles podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter with the Houston Chronicle. And I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter with Houston Chronicle. So it's officially been five years since Hurricane Harvey landed on the Gulf Coast region and brought so much rainfall and flooding to Houston and sparked this whole debate in real estate development about how we're supposed to go about building in Houston and all these flood prone areas. Even though we viscerally know the risk of flooding, everyone on this podcast knows Houston is a city that embraces development, and that's led to this tension about whether we're building with an eye for the flood risks of the future. So, for example, one of our lovely data people, Ali Koenig, looked at home permits since Harvey and found that one in every eight homes in Houston are built within the floodplain, although obviously Building standards have really tightened. They're built up. So the homes shouldn't flood given certain amounts of rainfall, which we'll get into. But they are in areas predisposed to flood. So to help us understand how and why this is happening, we've invited the Houston Chronicle County reporter, Jen Rice. You may have seen her recent story about development in the Katy Prairie area west of Houston. And she also has personal experience with Houston's flooding, having grown up in Ireland. Thanks for being with us, Jen. Thanks for having me. First, let's take a trip back in time to look at the history of Jen's neighborhood, Ireland, which is one of the earliest examples of how Houstonians built in the floodplains. Marissa, you just wrote on this. You want to tell us a little about it? Sure. So Myerland was this master plan community, one of the earliest master plan communities really in Houston. And around what time is this? 1950s and 1960s. Okay. So, you know, this was part of the post-war boom. And this real estate developer had been collecting or investor had been collecting all of this property in Southwest Houston. Um, a lot of it was former rice fields, which as we know, rice fields thrive on flooding his family ended up building out this subdivision called Myerland, and the area attracted a lot of Jewish families uh, from Riverside Terrace that we just talked about. I'm curious, Jen, to hear more about your experience growing up in Myerland. Yeah, so I grew up in Myerland. Uh, my family moved there in the 90s when I was little, and then my first flood, my first flood was Tropical Storm Allison in 2001. That was my first time. 
where you're like swimming out of the house because we had a one story house. So we like went across the street to get to the neighbors. And I will never forget the moment of like opening the front door to like go across the street and like all the water comes rushing in like three feet of water. So that's definitely like a formative memory for me. Wait, how old were you? Okay. I was in high school. I think I was 15 at the time. So the house didn't flood for a few years. And then, you know, that that three-year wipeout, we got all three of those in 2015, 16, and 17. And so, you know, I had gone to college and I wasn't living there, but my parents were living there. And um, my mom actually, she died in 2014. And then just a few months later was that first flood. That's, I can't imagine going through all that at once. I didn't know about your mom too. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So, so my dad was, he was on his own at that point at the house. He like, it was like him and our dog, like on the kitchen counter in 2015, just like waiting for the water to go down. And we just had these really tough conversations in our family where I was like, you're not moving back in. Like, we don't, we don't, we can't do this again. Like, I'm sure a lot of other people can, but like, we've been through a lot. Like, we're not doing this again. And we just had this continual conversation of like, no, 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 like, you're not, we're not, we're not doing this again. And then sure enough, like the house did flood in 16 and 17. So, um, definitely have personally experienced um, the the journey of living in Meyerland. Where is your, your dad today? Does he still own that property? Did he end up moving out? Yeah. So he moved out and we were lucky enough to be able to do that. A lot of people can't. And so, you know, our family story of flooding is definitely, a, there's a lot of privilege there and the ability to make choices that a lot of people can't make. So that's, that's one thing to say is a lot of, a lot of people have this a lot more difficult than we do. Um, but my dad was able to move and live somewhere else. Um, we have not sold that house yet. It's actually was demolished last year. And so now it's just like a lot. Actually, there was this kind of exodus of people that did move from Ireland and the surrounding greater zip code immediately after Harvey. And then it did slow down, but just looking at address change request data from the Postal Service, there are still slightly more people moving out than moving in. The population, the most recent estimate that we could find was from 2020, and the population decreased by about 18% from 2015. So it still hasn't completely recovered. Although there are some homeowners who, you know, were very attached to the neighborhood who did decide to stay, you know, made that choice, like you said. But it is an expensive choice to stay if your house was damaged because you have to make all these changes to it. But some folks, they wanted to make that sacrifice because they felt so close to their community. You know, it's pretty close-knit community, especially people that are involved in the synagogues and the Jewish Community Center. It is a good location. Like, it's not technically in the city center, but it feels close enough. And it's easy to get to, like, the Galleria, you know, and the schools are really good. How does it feel for your, like, home neighborhood to be the poster child of flooding? I mean, it's a huge part of my life. It's a big part of my identity and childhood. Like it, it's definitely not a small thing. It it feels like a big deal. And it's definitely also a big part of deciding to move back here. It was like, do I really want to be back where like all these memories are when I decided to move back to Houston? Mm -hmm. I will say though, just that it's not simply that Meyerland Mm -hmm. was built in a flood prone area. The issue here is also that and this is not me saying this, this is, you know, engineering flooding experts saying this, that in some mm. ways the floodplain came to Meyerland. 
And that's what we're seeing in the Katy Prairie area. That's what we're seeing in areas around Houston. And I think, look, a lot of Houston was built in an area that could flood, but I think it's important not to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of the choices that are being made because, and again, this is not me saying this, this is, um, you know, from interviews I've done with, with flooding experts that, that, you know, the increase in flooding in Meyerland has a lot to do with pavement. And, you know, for decades, people were able to pave and pave and pave without doing adequate detention and drainage requirements. And so we saw the flood risk rise, like climate change went up, but also Mm. literally the built environment changed. And so while people did make those choices when they moved to Meyerland in the nineties or however, whatever time period you want to use, people made those choices, Mm. but the math changed. I don't know if this made it into the final story, Jen, but in your reporting, you had talked about how there were like these golf courses that were supposed to be detention that could have prevented or at least reduced the Maryland flooding impacts. What was that about? Yeah, that was from my conversation speaking with um, Phil Bedient. He's at the Speed Center at Rice. And he has been looking at flood risk in Houston since the 80s. Like he's been sitting there with his computer model since the 80s looking at, okay, if it rains here, then where is it going to flood? And I think a lot of Houstonians would be surprised to know that 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 technology has been around for decades, that, you know, there yeah, this isn't new. And that people, these people are, you know, a lot of the people who are like the flooding experts in the Houston area have been here doing the exact same work for decades. And, you know, they've sort of been kind of sounding alarms. And to this day, we're not fully hearing them because there are reasons to ignore it. Um, Compelling reasons, good reasons. But, um, but yeah, so having spoken with, with Phil Bedient, he had told me, you know, he wrote a paper, he, he was, you know, doing research on this in the late 70s, looking specifically at Meyerland. And he he saw, you know, if you buy these three golf courses, um, you're going to be able to hold enough water to offset all this additional pavement. He specified one area in particular. He was looking at, you know, upstream of Meyerland where you saw all of these car dealerships coming in. And he was saying each one of these car dealerships was 9.9 acres because at 10 acres, you have to start building detention. And people didn't want to build detention. So every car dealership was 9.9 acres. And, and you see, you know, it can be sort of a game you know, to, to sort of get around these these rules. I guess I would just say from people who have looked at this for decades, the outcomes we've seen are predictable. They're not surprising. There were solutions that were advocated for over time that were passed over. So, you know, it's not news to the city that if you buy these three golf courses, then there will be the ability to store the water there. The city chose not to do that. That's a good point. It's not you know, it's not like this is all just brand new, like, oh, my God, we didn't know. But I think that for a lot of these houses in the 50s and 60s, I'm not sure if they fully knew the extent. So I guess what's been happening now is after Harvey, there was sort of this collective, okay, we need to do something about this. The city changed their building codes to require um, more elevation, Um, So homes had to build higher. So basically what happens now is if you're building a new home within the floodplain, you're supposed to figure out, you know, where that home sits in the elevation 
and how much the water would go up in like a 500 year event. And then you have to build uh, two feet above the 500 year flood level. The cost benefit analysis is such that some people um, are finding that just tearing down the old house and building new is, is more cost effective for them than taking an old house and lifting it because that could cost like $200,000. It's it's crazy how much it costs to elevate an existing house. So when you when you go through Ireland, uh, you see you know different elevations of houses. Like some are high, some are really big mansions that are like elevated and kind of just looming over everyone, and then some are still at the ground level. I think to me what that shows is that there are people still willing to invest in that neighborhood. They they are attached to it. So Rebecca, I, I wanted to ask you. You know, I I got a little bit into you know how the houses in Maryland are changing because of the building codes. And, but I wanted to get into just how, uh, you know, some of the different changes that the city has made and just different regulatory government agencies have made to, you know, what's considered the floodplain, how real estate developers are kind of figuring out how to continue to build in the floodplain. And, and you looked at Springbrook Village, but I know you've looked at a bunch of different areas. My story was really sort of focused around our data reporter, Ali Koenig's analysis had this question, where are building permits still being issued in the floodplain? And I um, was like, oh, I see this big cluster all together. It's a new new master plan community. It looks like it's all on the floodplain. And then I started looking at it closely. And it, I mean, it was actually super controversial because months after Harvey's waters receded, they were like, we're going to build... A master plan community here. And it was, in fact, as Jen Rice was talking about, a golf course. And it was a golf course in the floodplain. Satellite imagery shows that it had filled up with water during Harvey. The plan was to do this thing that's actually very common for master plan communities, which is if you reshape the landscape, then when you run the computer models, it'll appear like it won't flood. Like you say, oh, I run this computer model for this many inches of rain because I consider that many inches what Houston has a 1% chance of having of any year or a 0.5% chance. And when I run the model with that much rain, with these changes to the landscape, which is usually like building some ponds and then filling things to raise it up, then these homes are no longer in floodplains. The city had just passed more stringent elevation and detention requirements. They're like, look at this. This shows that developers will still develop even with these new rules in place. But, you know, some people are worried because modeling is pretty hard. There might be some things that weren't considered in the model. And I can get into an example of that that happened recently. Or maybe what the model got wrong is how much rain we're likely to get. You know, and either one of those situations could have impacts because they're sort of planning for a certain amount of water. How will we contain this? If they get more than that amount of water, it won't be contained the way they expected it to and who will be impacted. And actually really interesting in this neighborhood, I hope you all have flood insurance. As many of you know, flood insurance has gone up. FEMA changed the way it calculates flood insurance recently. Anecdotally, I feel like the people I've seen the biggest impact are like people who aren't technically in the floodplain. So in this new neighborhood, they built it up so high, their flood insurance has stayed very low, even with this change. Some homes, the flood insurance has even gone down because FEMA is like, you're so high up. We don't think you have a high likelihood of flooding. But the neighborhoods right outside of this community that weren't built as high, their insurance is going going up a lot. 
you're talking about Springbrook Village. I'm talking about Springbrook Village, which is in Northwest. Houston. Yes, it's sort of North Spring Branch area. I feel like a lot of people don't actually know the name of the neighborhood. They still think of it as the former Pinecrest Golf Course. I was saying an example of sometimes models don't quite get things right. Another you know, master plan community in Katy, where Jen did so much reporting and where so much development is happening now. Um, you know, there's this gated neighborhood called Lake House. And three inches of rain came down really fast one afternoon and the street just totally flooded and the neighborhood was trapped. It had no way in or out. And the residents were very concerned because it just happened a few weeks before. So if you're arguing that this is like a a hundred year flood (laughs) event or whatever, it had happened twice in a few weeks. So they were concerned. And when they went out and looked, people from the county, engineers, this is in Katy. This is a different part of town, further west. It's a place where like there's horses flicking their tails, but then there's also just like huge fields that are all being graded to be turned into communities. So a new community was going in just west of them. And two things that weren't captured in these in these flood models, all of this raw land, some of the dirt had washed into the ditch. And the ditch, which was supposed to be, I think, a foot and a half deep, was only a few inches deep. So that they didn't capture. That was a weird side effect of development that no one planned for. shouldn't have happened. And then another thing, the Lake House community, like a pipe was diverting water into a ditch that wasn't supposed to. Who knows how much that contributed. But a few things were happening. They were altering the landscape and things weren't going quite according to plan. Yeah. The issue about that is we're using all these models or developers are using these models in order to ask for conditional approvals for developing in the floodplains, right? What are these conditional approvals? Is it like saying, if I'm a developer, you know, I can say, okay, if I do all these things, then I'm not in the 100-year floodplain, or how does it work? So that's a great question. I didn't answer your original question. Yeah, usually it's by changing the landscape. You can also just argue that previous studies were wrong, but usually you change the landscape by building detention, things to hold the water and then lifting the other homes out of the water. And then you say, oh, do you see how this landscape has changed? In a hundred year rain event, this wouldn't flood. So it should not be considered part of the hundred year floodplain, which changes insurance requirements, right? So you can do that and you submit all of your paperwork ultimately to FEMA, but in Harris County, the Harris County Flood Control District, you know, takes a first look at it. They look at it, they pass it on to FEMA, FEMA looks at it, they're like, yeah, you're right. And then they actually change the flood insurance rate map, which obviously builders want because they can say, oh, the home is safe. If you can only afford this much a month, more of it can go towards a mortgage because you don't have to pay for flood insurance or it's going to be reduced. So they have a lot of incentive to do this. So it's very, very, very common with master plan communities. When Ali was looking at these numbers, if you included all the areas that had been in the floodplain before one of these, they call them letters of map revisions, revise them out of the map plane, one out of every seven built home permits was in, a, in what was once a floodplain. And then if you didn't count those, it went down to one in eight. And if I were building a townhome, if I'm doing infill, there's not the detention, <laughs> you know, I can't have the detention. So I'm just gonna, I'm still gonna build a home up, right? Because that's required by building codes these days. 
but I won't necessarily apply for the map revision. So it's only used by like the bigger developers. So what are the communities? Springbrook Village is one. And then I I was sort of surprised Bridgeland was one because I know Bridgeland does so much to like prevent, they have really designed with flood control in mind. So I was very surprised that it was Mm. ever considered part of the floodplain, but they have gotten these letters a little portion of East River. Mm. I, I remember talking to the East River developer and I was like, it's right next to the Paiu. And they're like, oh, there's only a corner and we raised it up. And that's exactly what these maps are. These letter of map revisions are. So they have a letter of map revision. Does that mean if they get a letter of map revision, is that saying like... The flood insurance rate map has changed. It's not in the flood. You are no longer okay, in the floodplain okay. because of whatever you did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in addition to these conditional you know, letters that developers can get, there are also really big changes happening nationally about where, you know, floodplains are. And and that is going to really impact Houston. And you're talking about Atlas 14. Where we develop, how we develop. Yes. Could you talk more about Atlas 14? Like, what is that? When do we expect this big thing to drop? You want to go for it, Jen? Uh, Sure. When we talk about how much rainfall we're expecting. That's the key question here. How much rainfall do we expect to get? How much rainfall are we planning to receive? These are questions that are answered by the federal government. And they they haven't updated the numbers in like decades until now. And so now there are these new numbers that have come out. And previously in Harris County, the big number everyone was planning for was 13.2 inches of rain. That was what we called a 100-year storm. And that was sort of the the building standard. We want to be able to plan for 13.2 inches of rain. But now the federal government has included more rainfall data going up through 2017. So it includes Harvey now, like that's part of the data. So now we're planning for 17 inches of rain. So that's a pretty substantial difference. The data is still debatable though. You know, these, these, this isn't just black and white science. Like everything is gray about this. And the question is, you know, if you're planning, if you're building houses and you're building entirely new neighborhoods, entirely new communities that are going to be here in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if you want your house to be protected, if we're talking about a house that needs to withstand flooding in 50 years, do you want to use rainfall data that cuts off in 2017, even though we know that the climate is changing? Yeah, it's not projected data at all. It's all retrospective. Yeah. So I think that you know, it's it's a really interesting time right now. You know, it's it comes after Harvey. We have this new these new numbers, and I think that while it it is a really big change in terms of it it forces this whole community to plan for more rain. What concerns me is that people will just think, okay, we have got updated numbers, we're good now, instead of continuing to question, well, is this actually how much rainfall we're going to be getting in the years ahead? Yeah, and I think that tension is coming up. It came up when I was doing my Maryland reporting because a lot of the homeowners there were like, oh, well, the county is finishing up this big project to shore up the resiliency of Braze Bayou, which is the big bio that runs through Maryland and Southwest Houston. It makes it so that Braze Bayou can hold more water so that the next time there's a huge event that there's more room for the channel itself to hold water before it starts overflowing. And they added a bunch of detention ponds and it was a $480 million project. The county is saying about 15,000 structures were basically helped by this um, in terms of reducing the risk or the severity of future floods. Now there's a few caveats. 
okay, now I'm in a supposedly a lower risk area. There's still risk for flooding, but it's like, how much, you know, is it like a few inches of water or several inches of water? Or maybe there are some parts of the the area that won't get water, but then other parts will. Furthermore, getting back to floodplains, when the county says, oh, all these houses are now in the 500-year floodplain, not the 100-year floodplain, they're using those old definitions. Yeah. With my Harvey story, I just really wanted people to walk away with an awareness of how many inches of rain we're talking about instead of being comforted by the idea of a 100-year or 500-year protection. I think people can understand their flood risk a lot better when we talk in terms of inches. And so Project Braze was built for 13.2 inches, although now this the now that standard would be for 17. I just feel like people need to know how much rain we've had in the past and kind of decide for themselves, you know, how much protection we should have. And I think like I mean, first of all, thank God it happened, right? No matter what, some water has room to go. But how much peace of mind you have, you know, you have to be a little bit realistic. Yeah, I think that's the case for all of this that we're talking about. It's, it's you know, it's, it does help a lot. It doesn't remove the risk entirely, though. Um, so, Jen, you know, Marilyn's sort of an example of maybe past development in the floodplain and how, you know, homeowners now are sort of dealing with the consequences of that. But the Katy area is a huge area of growth population-wise. Home builders are responding to the demand for new homes there. Uh, so what's going on in Katy Prairie? And, and actually, where, what is Katy Prairie? Is it like actual <laughs> prairie? And, and what, what's the history of that area? So we're talking about an area in northwest Harris County, the prairie used to be the entire landscape here. And then over the decades, it shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. The definition that we had in the 90s was basically anywhere between the Brazos River, US 290, Highway 6, and Interstate 10, which yeah. I think is hilarious that we've we've decided to define the prairie by highways. It's pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> well, one's a river, at least. <laughs> um, like, oh, yeah, these natural boundaries, Highway 6. <laughs> Yeah, at least one's a river. <laughs> yeah, so the, the prairie is really extra, extra rain absorbent sponge land. It holds so much more water than a field today, like a football field or something. Like it just, it has these really um, deep rooted grasses and it just absorbs a lot of water. So that's something that we've lost. And um, some of it has been preserved. There's, um, it used to be called the Katy Prairie Conservancy, but now it's called the Coastal Prairie Conservancy. And they've been working since the 90s to like grab a thousand acres here, a thousand acres here. And they're trying to like put together as, as large an amount that they can preserving and restoring um, the original ecosystem, which is really, really challenging work that they've done. But, you know, it does continue to shrink. One reason why I think it's so important for the whole Houston area to understand not just that neighborhood is because it's located really like just upstream of the Attics Reservoir. And that became a huge focal point during Harvey because for the first time in history, the Attics Reservoir actually did cause, you know, some neighborhoods around it to flood, even though it operated as intended. Nothing really went wrong. It's just there had been a lot of development where people were allowed to build in the reservoir area directly. So they flooded, which was, you know, to a certain extent expected. People knew, you know, if there's ever a storm this large, this is an area that's going to flood. Not to say that the homeowners knew that, but but certainly 
um, to some extent, officials knew that there was that risk. And then also, you know, downstream of the reservoir, some people flooded because of that. So I would just say the Attics Reservoir got a lot of attention during Harvey. And the, the question of how much are we developing around the Attics Reservoir was a big question. And so, you know, I thought five years later, kind of looking at, well, was there a lesson learned here? Was kind of a good a good question to revisit. One really key indicator that I saw was between 2010 and 2020, nearly 100,000 people had moved into the Attics Reservoir watershed upstream of the reservoir. So within the last decade, you know, 100,000 people have moved to that area, which is pretty remarkable. And we're talking, so I feel like there's two things. One is like some people built in the reservoir and it's like, when this fills, your home will also fill, right? Like this is the plan. But when you're talking about the watershed, you're talking about like, oh, before these super deep rooted grasses would soak up the water and they'd hold it before it moved down. Because watershed is the area where all the water that lands on it will eventually shed into that reservoir unless it's being held by the land itself. So there's like two different things with development. And you looked at the development where the land might have prevented the water from reaching that reservoir. Yes, exactly. So that that kind of indicates that in Harvey, we did still have some of this land and now that's been lost in some of the land that was keeping even more water out of the reservoir has now been turned into communities and housing. And so it follows that if we had the exact same storm again, there would be more water in the reservoir now because there's less place for it to go upstream. Where does water from that reservoir end up? Oh, yeah. So Attic's Reservoir is the very top of Buffalo Bayou. That's why it's so important. That's why it was built there in the first place. The reservoirs are built to protect Buffalo Bayou, which you know flows all the way to downtown. And it's just so core to all of Houston economically. And so many people's lives depend on the Buffalo Bayou flow. And so that's why the reservoirs were built. And that's why when we're talking about development upstream of it, that would potentially end up putting more water in the reservoir that we've already seen stretch to the limit. That's why this is something that impacts all of Houston. I don't know the answer to this question, but I assume you do. When we're talking about like, okay, I'm building this community. I want to build all the homes up two feet above what we consider the 500-year floodplain. But I don't want more water draining off of it than before. So they look at the way water flows, right? Like if this volume of water lands on this property, where is it going to go? But they, are they also looking at how much water would have been retained by the vegetation on that property? There's a whole volume of water in the land. Is this part of this modeling? Yes, that is a really good question. It's hard for me to explain since <laughs> yeah. I'm not an engineer, but my understanding of it is that they take that natural land and they sort of like clear it. And it's at that point uh-huh. that they calculate how much runoff there should be. So they don't really they don't really consider the way that it naturally was and how much we've lost through that water storage. They're kind of looking at like a baseline of like, now that we've kind of cleared it and it's ready for development, how yeah. much water are we, how much water storage are we losing at this point? So no, and I do think there are studies. So there's an impact on downstream homes, even when you build to the standard. And even if you consider the same rainfall, there's still going to be an impact on people downstream because there's some water that was being held by the land that's not being accounted. I think so. However, I would also say as the county reporter, um, it is the county's position that there is no downstream impact. Because they aren't paying attention to what the land would hold, right? That's that's the key to this, right? It's part of it. Um, Another thing is just in Fort Bend County, for instance, the restrictions are 10 times stronger in terms of how much runoff is allowed to come off of a property. They're just, they are just required to detain a lot more water. Fort Bend is sugar land. Yeah, yeah. 
But I do feel as the county reporter, I do just really want to emphasize that like it is the county policy to have no downstream impact whatsoever. So Harris County policy or for? Yes. Harris County's policy is that they do not allow any downstream impact. So it is important to emphasize that the county does not think it's okay to create downstream impacts. So Fort Bend County, super interesting. You told us something that like, I think kind of made our eyes pop, which was their county engineer, how much rain they think we should be planning for. Yes, it's, um, he's not the county engineer. He, Larry Dunbar, he, um, he's an engineer in the Houston area. He, he um, assisted with like developing their drainage and detention criteria. He's a consultant okay. for the county, but he's not the engineer. Um, but yeah, he said, you know, in his estimation, he thinks that the Houston area should be planning for 30 inches of rain. And we're talking about what a big difference planning from a 13 inch to mm-hmm. 17 inch made. What's the reaction to this estimate? Well, however, I do want to say, though, you know, Fort Bend County is using the Atlas 14 numbers as well. They're not planning for 30 inches of rain. They're also using Atlas 14. So, you know, Dunbar has, you know, this this higher estimate in mind. And I, I don't think anyone would argue that, like, that's bananas because we've had that kind of flooding several times in the past two decades. So it's definitely not out of nowhere. But I just want to emphasize that that's not actually the standard that Fort Bend is planning to. When you both think about the reporting that you have done, I mean, are regulators doing enough to protect homeowners or regulators and real estate developers doing enough? Should we have even tighter standards? You know, are real estate developers maybe should build even above, you know, what the restrictions are just to hedge against the future? What, what What's your kind of takeaway, I guess, on, you know, how we actually learn the lessons of Harvey and, you know, what Maryland has gone through over the years. Well, I would say, Marissa, you you brought something up that was interesting because you were like, oh, if we didn't build in floodplains. Oh, right. Yeah. Where would we build? How would we house our growing population? How would we have any affordable housing? Yeah. that And these are all questions that come up. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing is the, the cost of development is already so high that it's, and it's not, and the reason why that's important, it's actually like homeowners and renters are directly impacted by the cost of development, right? And we've had this chronic housing shortage. So having more restrictions on, you know, where you develop, how you develop, it just adds to that cost or makes it harder. Like you, you were saying, Jen, like, yeah, like 30 inches building up to that level, that'd be great. But like, who can afford that? <laughs> and what would that look like? <laughs> I think it's really important to have sort of two minds at the same time. On the one end, to understand why we have the reality that we have, you know, there there are good reasons to keep building in the floodplain. Like we do have a growing community and affordability matters so much for people's lives. So there's a reason for it. I just, I think at the same time, we need to recognize that the flood risk doesn't accommodate that. Like we still have to have a realistic understanding of, of flood risk just because people want to think that they haven't built in the floodplain doesn't mean they haven't built in the floodplain. And so I think, you know, I think kind of what Houston needs to understand is two things. Like we're going to, we're going to build this way because that's what makes sense, but that doesn't mean that the flood risk is totally mitigated. And we're just going to need to figure out a way to live with a contradiction a little bit more. And I think there's always been this idea that like, Oh, Houston is affordable because it has no geographic constraints. It's not San Francisco where you have water on three sides. It's not, you know, Manhattan where you're bound to an island. It can like grow in all directions. But I think what floods show us is that's 
not totally true. There are geographic constraints, but they are geographic constraints that we don't always have to face. That's a really good point. You know, I think one thing in Maryland is it costs a lot of money for people who decided to leave and for people who decided to stay. There was a cost involved that eats into affordability, but it wasn't paid up front, totally. right? As I mentioned in my story, a lot of people want to be in Maryland because it's a good location just for convenience to amenities and the schools, but it's way cheaper than a lot of the surrounding communities. I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, everywhere is just as flood heavy as Maryland, but it feels like more and more, you know, Houstonians are going to be in this scenario where they're having to have those conversations or make those decisions about how much do I pay for the house up front? Should I get flood insurance? Should I just say, you know, screw it and leave Houston? You know, I don't know. I can't tell you how many times when people have read my stories about flooding, like the first thing people ask me is like, I read your story. Do I need to get flood insurance? Like people ask me that so often. And my answer is always yes. Yeah. And I guess that the the thing is, though, that it's, you know, it it adds more cost. Yeah. The flood, flood, it it adds more cost to the, the, the just owning a home in general. So, um, but yeah, the, the recommendation is that everyone in Houston should have flood insurance, even if you don't technically live in a floodplain. Um, but yeah, I guess so. So, I mean, what's kind of next in, in all of this story? I mean, are we expecting a lot more changes when these new like rules come out, when this mapping comes out? Well, one thing is the new flood maps are going to come out. We're going to get the new floodplain maps. They're expected by the end of this year, and they're going to be based on these new higher rainfall estimates, which means certainly more people will suddenly be in the floodplain. They didn't know, but now they will be. And you know, that's just all that means is that with a projection of expecting more rainfall, this is who would now potentially flood. And I think, you know, for the three of us, what that is, is some work at looking at, okay, well, but what, what adjustments were made to these maps? You know, that's our job is to sort of look at, you know, well, what kind of revisions were made and do they make sense? And and sort of just kind of being like a, a watchdog of, of making sure that those, you know, that, that the floodplain maps are really, really showing everyone their true flood risk. Their true historical flood risk. The true flood risk as of 2017. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Should I wrap it up? Thanks, Jen, for coming today. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you haven't already read our wonderful Harvey stories, not just us, but the papers, there are a lot of them. We will include links to them in our show notes. Uh, You can just go to houstonchronicle.com slash looped in. We want to thank our print editors, Lily Thomas and Rob Gavin. Thanks to our producer, Scott Kingsley. Thanks to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. And of course, as always, thanks to you listeners for tuning in. Until next time. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.